According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. <clears throat> Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in Proverbs 24. Proverbs 24, and uh, we're looking at verses 8 and 9 this morning. I think we finished everything out of verse 7 a week ago. So we'll see if we get 8 and 9 today, and then, uh, oh, maybe verse 10 next week. we got today and next week, our final two Proverbs classes for a while. So this week and next week, and then we have a year off while we do through the Bibles. Remember, there's no Wednesday morning class in 2022. So I uh, don't know what we're going to do with our new format, but in any event. One who plans to do evil, men will call a schemer. The devising of folly is sin, and the scoffer is an abomination to men. All right, before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time in the truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before you this morning thankful for faithfulness, thankful for grace and truth, rejoicing, Father, that you are so faithful to open our eyes, open our ears, and soften our hearts. I thank you for the living and abiding Word of God, Father, and for today, as we study to show ourselves approved, once again we become the objects of your grace, the objects of your mercy, the objects of your faithfulness. As you manifest all of these towards each one of us, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so Proverbs 24, and uh, what have we covered so far? Words of the wise, number 19, that got us through verses 1 and 2. Then uh, words of the wise, number 20, got us through verses 3 and 4 about home building. By wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. And obviously we want to build our own houses in wisdom. Words of the wise, number 21, got us through verses 5 and 6. A wise man is strong and a man of knowledge increases power. And this is how we wage war. By wise guidance, he will wage war. In the abundance of counselors, there is victory. So we have spiritual strength for the angelic conflict, which comes about through a Bible doctrine in a community of fellow disciples. So vital that we realize that, that we're not alone in this conflict, that we have brothers and sisters. We have one another to build us up in the faith and strengthen us in the inner man as we, uh, as we function in the angelic conflict. Words of the wise number 22, single verse, verse 7, all by its lonesome there. Wisdom is too exalted for a fool. He does not open his mouth in the gate. The spiritual capacity to have a positive impact in public life is out of the fool's reach. The spiritual capacity to have positive impact. We want to have positive impact in our culture, in our neighborhoods, in our nation. As God has blessed us and the fact that we have uh, blessings unknown in the history of the world until you know, until America was invented. I mean, just the, the freedom that we have to, uh, to form a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, the privilege that we have in grace to be able to vote for our uh, representatives, to vote for our lawmakers, to vote for our executive, the, uh, 
the, the, just the, the unique nature of the United States of America as founded as a constitutional republic. The fact that our supreme authority is the Constitution. This is unknown in the history of the world and it is unique in the course of, uh, of human events. And the privilege that we have to, uh, to be able to vote, to be able to function and uh, to operate in this way, to open our mouth in the gates to be able to make our views known because our views will ultimately be the reflection of God's views when we communicate Bible doctrine in the public square. So this is, uh, this is our privilege. And of course the fool has no such capacity and, uh, and uh, they, they view the public square, they view political um, participation as a means to power. They use it as, a, as they view that as their opportunity to, to control things, to control other people's lives and to accumulate power and wealth to themselves. We view it as an opportunity to communicate doctrine, to represent the Lord and to be a blessing to one another. And so totally opposite worldviews and totally opposite political aims that are being uh, achieved by the different parties in this, uh, in this endeavor. In any event, the natural mind and the carnal mind crave the exaltation of political power. And notice, that's a like-mindedness between the natural mind and the carnal mind, right? Are we clear on the terms? The natural man is the unbeliever. They don't even have a living human spirit. They are completely soulish. The natural man is the unregenerate man. The carnal man is saved, he has a living human spirit, but he's walking in darkness. He is fleshly, he is carnal, he is walking like the natural man. And so on that basis, a believer who is out of fellowship, a believer who is walking in darkness, is functionally similar or even identical to the unbeliever. When you are not being transformed by the renewing of your mind, you are being conformed to this age. That is the consequence. So the natural mind and the carnal mind both craving this exaltation of political power. But it is God's wisdom that is exalted and equips the humble to serve. It is God's wisdom that, uh, that is exalted. So when you're trying to exalt yourself, when you're trying to promote yourself, just remember when God, if God doesn't promote you then you're not promoted. You're not truly promoted. Any self-promotion you achieve is, is just that, self-promotion. And uh, anything that's man-made can be destroyed pretty quickly. All right. It is God's wisdom that is exalted and equips the humble to serve. And I know we dealt with this last week, but just by way of reminder, it's worth looking at again. Psalm 75. It's not Davidic, it's a Psalm of Asaph. So here we go. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. Men declare your wondrous works. Okay? That's when a nation's under blessing. Men will declare God's wondrous works. When I select an appointed time, it is I who judge with equity. The earth and all who dwell in it melt. It is I who have firmly set its pillars. I said to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak with insolent pride. And if a culture is, is oriented to doctrine, if a culture has the like-mindedness from the Word of God, then we're not looking for the, the people that are on the self-exaltation program. We're not looking to the, uh, the uh, imitators of Satan that are involved in this. We're looking in humility for the Lord. 
For not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the desert comes exaltation, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. We realize this, that we just stay humble, we keep our eyes fixed on the Lord, we're walking in the light day by day, and when He chooses to exalt, when He chooses to promote, that's His good pleasure. That is absolutely His good pleasure. In the meantime, we just stay faithful. We keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, we continue on in, uh, in His will. For a cup is in the hand of the Lord and the wine foams. It is well mixed and he pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. Now you consider this written when it was in the Old Testament era and you start to wonder how much more stirred is this wrath? How much more? If he's been stirring this drink and stirring this drink and stirring this drink, you know, it's ready to be poured forth. It's ready for the wicked to drink. And ultimately in the tribulation is when they will drink it. In the meantime, God just keeps stirring. He keeps stirring. He's so patient, so much patient, more patient than we would be. I tell you, I would have raptured the church ages ago and been done with it. And, uh, but God knows what He's doing, and we're thankful for that. As for me, I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob, and all the horns of the wicked He will cut off, but the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. Okay? This is what we're looking forward to. There's a coming kingdom. It's not, we're not going to bring it about through human effort. We're not going to bring it about through our own endeavors. We're just going to stay faithful until the Lord returns. And that's what we're called to do. Ultimately, it is the most humble human being to ever live. That's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He will be exalted to the maximum. Because he humbled himself, he is exalted. The causative nature of this It's not on the screen, but we dealt with this in the Philippians class, that he humbled himself, and it's for this reason he also is highly exalted. The most humble human being to ever live, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who is exalted to the maximum. And this is what we're looking forward to. He will return. He is presently seated at the Father's right hand until such time as the Father says, go. He says, go and rule in the midst of your enemies. And then Jesus Christ will indeed. He will come and he will take his seat on the throne of David. He's going to conquer at Armageddon and and the, the kingdom gets established after that. Because he was humble, the Father will exalt him. And this is the nature of the temptation. Satan tried to short circuit this. Satan tried to offer him the kingdom without the suffering, without the humility. That uh, he shouldn't have to suffer. Why would he suffer? Just bow down and worship me and I will give you all the kingdoms of this world and all their glory. And this is the, the snare that Satan laid before Jesus and he would have none of it. He was not falling for it for an instant. That he was going to continue on in the Father's will just walking with humility the, uh, the race that's set before him. All right, well now this gets us to words of the wise number 23, verses 8 and 9. Crafty, inventive sin is a human abomination. Crafty, inventive sin is a human abomination. The Bible talks about a lot of things that are abominations. The tot levah in the Hebrew, the abominations that uh, cause God uh, revulsion, His desire to push at arm's length. Remember, uh, a delight is something you embrace, something you draw close, something you hug. Uh, that's a delight. But a, uh, an abomination is something that you push away, something you hold at arm's length, something that you want nowhere near you because it is detestable. It, uh, you, you, uh, it is something that, that you, you revile regarding. Okay? And, and it's curious. It's not always the things we might expect. 
you know, the obvious ones, the, the, the homosexuality and the other abominations that get attention, that get preached at. Uh, but actually the prideful heart, uh, one who spreads strife among brothers, these are the things that God detests above everything else. Okay? When he starts putting them in a list and says this one is, is greater than all the rest, we better pay attention to those. But here we have the planning to do evil. The scheming, the devising of folly is a sin. And the scoffer is an abomination to men. And we have really four clauses here, two, an A and a B for each of these two verses. And between the A and a B we, have, we actually have four segments that we have to deal with in this poem, in, this, in the poetry of these verses. And it centers on our thinking. It centers on the, the planning that's involved, the conscious thought that's going into the sin. The planning, the scheming, the devising, the scoffing. All these activities that represent um, a, um, a mockery of God himself. That represent a, uh, an abominable defiling of God's very nature because it's so insulting to the character of who our Father truly is. Our Father is a planner. Our Father is a provider. And so when we... When we um, live in defiance of that through satanic plotting, satanic planning, satanic provision. It is the, uh, it is the um, abomination that is in open defiance of our Father. And I'll explain what I mean by that as we work our way through. Crafty, inventive sin. Crafty, inventive sin. I like that as a title. The idea that um, not just crafty in the sense of, of being a, a, you know, a serpent or being a, a deceitful person. Uh, crafty in the sense of, uh, we can use crafty in two different ways, right? Like arts and crafts. Uh, I have a very crafty wife because she is good at, with crafts, you know, putting, putting things together and, and little, um, you know, projects for Sunday school classes and little uh, just things that they have to color and cut out and glue and, and stuff that you know, I, my mind doesn't work in that regard, all right? So I have no uh, craftiness when it comes to the arts and crafts, right? But then there's the other kind of craftiness, you know, where you're uh, shifty and, and uh, deceitful and, and like a serpent, you know, you're crafty because you're deceptive and, uh, and that kind of crafty. Well, both of them, you can think of both of those kinds of crafty in this, concept, in this context here. Because the, the abominable thinking that is finding inventive, creative ways for the next sin, trying to find new ways, the idea of being an inventor of evil, whereby you want to kind of create a whole new way to express carnality. That's the craftiness that's being uh, addressed here in these verses. All right, so one who plans to do evil. Let's talk about that to start with. The planner the thinker, the considerer, <laughs> the one who considers, the reckoner of evil, okay? To reckon. And we actually have a perversion of a very beautiful, glorious concept of something that we love theologically. But somebody that uh, plans this, that thinks this, that considers this, that reckons this, the reckoner of evil. We can go ahead and just leave it as the plan, because I don't mind that. It's a good translation, and it's what we have in the New American Standard. The one who plans to do evil. Okay? Not just the one who does evil, but the one who planned it. 
Because some people just jump on board somebody else's evil and just participates with it. But when you are actually the planner and now you're doing it and you have other people jumping on board your evil train, okay, you, you realize why this is much more accountable. Because the thinking precedes the doing. So we'll talk about this planning. And then the title that comes with that when men call them the schemer. All right. The Hebrew verb is chasav. C-H-A-S-H-A-B. Or even chashev. I should make that an E now that I see the, the vowel pointing on that. Strongest number is 2803. Now I'm starting to wonder if I have a typo on my own screen. I either have a typo with the Hebrew or I have a typo with the English. I'm not liking it <laughs> as I look at it. All right. Strong's number 2803, and it's used over 100 times. It is used 112 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. It's very common, the most common Old Testament word used to describe the process of thinking. So it's a verb that applies to human beings. It's a verb that applies to God. It's a verb that applies, I think it applies, we can find angelic references what we find, it's a thought process that's being executed by a rational being. And um, it is, in the Septuagint, it is the verb that is most frequently rendered with lagidzamai. With lagidzamai. And if you've ever done word studies on lagidzamai, if you've done one, you've done 20, we've hit this verb repeatedly. This is the verb for imputation. This is the verb for reckoning. If it's reckoned to him as righteousness, like in Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. We know this very well. We know this from the Greek very well. We know this from the New Testament quotations very well because it's applied with a verb lagizomai in all of our theological studies as it relates to imputation. How is it reckoned? How is it considered? How is it then assigned or how is it then imputed? And theologically we deal with these principles and we have distinctions that is found between justification and imputation. Okay, Relates to the judicial uh, proclamations that God himself makes. My sins are imputed to Jesus' account. His righteousness is credited to my account. I'm not a righteous man but I'm credited as righteous because this is how God considers it. This is how God reckons it. This is how God judicially declares it to be a finding of his court. Praise God for that. <laughs> okay. And so these are the these are the blessings that we have theologically and I think we're very familiar with them, but now it's time to actually go back and see what is the Hebrew that sits underneath the Legizomai that uh, that has driven so much of our uh, so much of our uh, theological conclusions that we come to. All right, Because what we're going to find is we're going to find that this reckoning, this consideration that we make is sometimes flawed if it's colored by carnality. Right? If, if we're in darkness, if we're functioning out of fellowship, then we can consider a lot of things that are not true, but we can consider them to be true. We can reckon them as if they're true, as in the case of sin. As in the case if, if we're the ones that are considering evil, as a planner of evil. Okay? And that gets us to what we're dealing with here in, in Proverbs 24. So, um, like I say, 112 times. I want to go ahead and look it up while I'm at it. Reckon. 
chashav, choshev as a participle, but let's see. Make it large enough for the older eyes to look at. All right, that is chashav with an, okay, chashav. Sometimes I'm looking at two little dots and they get merged together and it looks like a line. Why is that? I thought that uh, cataract surgery was supposed to give me the, the, the better vision. All right, well, I'll fix that before next time. Um, or maybe not. I've got a whole year off of Proverbs and I don't have to fix this slide at all. So chashav, the most common word used to describe the process of thinking. It's the process of reckoning. It's what you think it to be. It's what you credit it to be. So it was reckoned to him as righteousness. God in, made that reckoning. God made that uh, determination, that consideration. God assigned that as the criteria when he, re- he, he observed the faith and that being the criteria then God reckoned that as righteousness. Okay? He didn't earn righteousness. He didn't, he didn't uh, earn or deserve God's righteousness. He responded in faith and God credited that faith as righteousness. Faith, remember, is non-meritorious. It, you don't earn anything or deserve anything when you simply trust what God has said and when you trust what God has provided. But it becomes the, the criteria by which the, the, uh, the gift can be given in, in, on a grace basis. That's the the nature of it. All right. Reckoned it to him as righteousness. We've got a few other things. Let's look at these other Genesis examples. Genesis 31, Genesis 38, Genesis 50. That's going to show us a broad spectrum of usage that's going to grab our attention for the Proverbs application. <clears throat> you might remember what's happening here in um, in Genesis 31 is that Jacob has these wives and they're competing he married the two sisters. He got tricked into marrying the older sister when he wanted to marry the younger sister. But this is now the discussion between these girls related to their dad and his considerations. All right, so Jacob, by the way, has to meet them out there in the uh, field. Doesn't want any servants overhearing and doesn't want any word to get back to um, Laban. But he calls Rachel and Leah to the field and he says, I see your father's attitude that it is not toward toward me as formerly. I've served your father with all my strength. He has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. That's either a literal number or just an idiom, right? Um, However, God did not allow him to hurt me. And every time that Laban changed the deal, God's sovereignty overruled and the, the changed deal ended up being in in uh, Jacob's favor. You know, striped sheep, speckled sheep, uh, all these things. Every time Laban changed the terms, God moved his hand to benefit Jacob. So God has taken away your father's livestock, given them to me, and um, it's not that Jacob was so smart, he just got his tips in a dream and obeyed God and walked by faith and, and, uh, and he was benefited. All right. 
So Rachel and Leah said to him, do we still have any portion or inheritance in our father's house? You know, the, the girl has to realize this. What does she have in her father's house? And, what does she, and once she's married, and once she's now in her husband's house, how does that dynamic work? Because, you know, whatever dowry was paid, whatever bride price was paid, the father was supposed to hold that in trust in the event that that girl was widowed, in the event she had to return to her father's house in some future occasion. Uh, but what does he have left compared to what Jacob has now? And all this wheeling and dealing and all these considerations, Laban has very little that's left and Jacob now is, is, has this tremendous wealth. Do we still have any portion or inheritance in our father's house? Are we not reckoned by him as foreigners? He counts us now as foreigners. For he has sold us and he has also entirely consumed our purchase price. Laban ought to be absolutely filthy rich after 20 years of Jacob working on his behalf. But see, Laban was trying to, was trying to wheel and deal and, uh, and he paid the price for that. All the wealth which God has taken away from our father belongs to us and our children. Now then, do whatever God has said to you. So these wives are now in agreement with whatever Jacob wants to do. They're, they're on board with, with Jacob's uh, marital decision here that they're going to relocate back to Canaan. They're going to leave Padan Haram and they're going to return to Canaan. And they're on board with that. And... Uh, I imagine Leah and Rachel had, even though they're agreeing in this, I suspect that they had a different uh, thought process that got them there. But are we not reckoned by him as foreigners? This gets now to our verb chashav, okay? This gets down to the thinking, to the reckoning, that Laban considers these girls to be foreigners, right? Doesn't make it true, but that's how he reckons it. That's how he considers it. And, and keep in mind, what you choose to think about something is your volition at work. It's what you choose to, to evaluate something, what you choose to reckon something. Do you, do you consider the Bible class as important? That's your value system. That's your thought process. That's how you reckon it. And where does it rank in the, in the, the contrast to other things? It's entirely within your sovereignty for how you evaluate these things. Are we not reckoned by him as foreigners? Uh, Genesis thirty-eight fifteen. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot. So here's Judah looking at Tamar, right? And he reckoned, he considered, he thought she was a harlot. Okay? And she wasn't. But she was dressed like it. She was playing the harlot. And uh, she traps him with this, with this episode, a pretty ugly episode, in Genesis 38. He reckoned that she was a harlot. Was he correct? No. Well, yes and no. <laughs> okay. She wasn't, except this night she was playing it. Okay. So the things we reckon may be true, may not be true, but we think they are, and so we take action based upon what we think, based upon what we consider, based upon what we reckon. Okay? You reckon? All right. When uh, Jacob is, uh, when Joseph is being reunited with his brothers, and he said, "You meant it for evil; God meant it for good." It's the verb we're looking at in this study. It's the it, this is the the chashav verb that we're looking at. So you reckoned it, you considered it, you thunk it, you planned it. 
you chashavd it. It comes back to the thought process. They considered it. God also considered it. They had their considerations. God has his consideration. And if in his permissive will he allows for an evil thing to happen, that means he's going to be working it together for good and he has his, his good reasons for letting it happen. So as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. Because God knew this famine was going to come and he needed to put Joseph where he put Joseph in order to feed his family, in order to feed Egypt, in order to feed the world at this point. That the Jewish people are going to be the blessings to the Gentiles is kind of a preview of the coming millennium, is it not? Joseph's a type of Christ and uh, he's going to be the provision that God makes. Not only for the Jewish people, but for all the Gentiles as well. So what you meant, God meant. And this comes down to our intentions. Remember, it's not just what we do, but what we intend that is accountable before God. The Word of God is a critical judge of the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So we got to, again, take, take all of these external deeds back up a step to the, to the mental attitude, to the thought process that, that feeds into these activities. Exodus 34 and verse 1. Ooh, maybe not. Chashav. All right, tell you what. I will find my typos. It's not 34 1. Thirty-one four. Little dyslexia at work. There we go. Here's a fun one. Exodus thirty um, thirty-one four. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. This gives you his tribe, his clan, his family, his name. Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, in all kinds of craftsmanship. Remember we talk about crafty and the different kinds of crafty? Bezalel this is the guy that, that was supernaturally empowered with a craftiness for the manufacturing of the, of the furniture, for the, the garments, for the artistic designs, for everything. And it takes a special wisdom, a special skill, a special planning, a creativity, a thinking, a consideration, a reckoning. All kinds of craftsmanship to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, bronze, the cutting of stones for settings, in the carving of wood that he may work all kinds of craftsmanship. And so this is the verb that we have here. In the footnote it tells you uh, to devise devices. That's kind of cool. To devise devices, okay? To, to, to think thoughts, to, to scheme schemes, to plan plans, to uh, devise devices, Okay, um, we can do we can do this all day with different English words, right? But 
This is the, this is the expression. And this is, again, this is human creativity that's at work. God is the creator, but he has created us in his image. And part of that created image is this creativity. And uh, we all have creativity, most of us, I'm the exception to the rule. We all have creativity one way or the other, and sometimes more than one way. A creativity in, uh, in, in, in terms of thoughtful inventiveness, in terms of creativeness, in terms of, and, and maybe it's musical creativity, maybe it's um, uh, uh, construction, like carpentry, like, like the devising of this, of this uh, pulpit. Incredible creativity went into this design. But that requires <coughs> this, this chashav verb that we're looking at, okay? A certain kind of thinking that is imaginative, that can, that, that can daydream and speculate and ponder and, and consider, you know, uh, different shapes and different configurations and different details and, and all the tweaks involved in the fine tuning. Okay. And sometimes, so it might be artistic, it might be musical, it might be constructive, it might be, um, uh, with, with garments, it might be, uh, you know, just the, the idea that you got a sheet of, and this boggles my mind, but I've seen uh, my wife and my mother-in-law and my mother, I've seen what they do when they take cloth and then fold it and fold it again and stitch it and sew it and now it has a different shape. How does that work? Okay? Because it's a different shape than it was before you folded it and you, and you cut it and you, see, and you sewed it and you stitched it and all this other stuff that happens. The idea, to be able to visualize that, to visualize what it will look like when you're done folding and cutting and sewing and, and all of that, my brain just doesn't go there. That's my, my mind can't even, can't even process it. Okay? So to make artistic designs, and I like that. This is, this is, what, goes in, this is what goes into it. Okay? And understand, this is what our father did. Our Father put a plan into place whereby Jesus Christ came when He came at that precise moment. And all the generations from Adam to Jesus and all the steps that it took, the the outworking of God's plan for angels, for Gentiles, for Jews, the outworking of God's plan that had Israel and all these tribes but set apart the tribe of Judah, set apart the house of David, called a, a virgin, brought her to Bethlehem, all these designs all these intricate details, amazing creativity, inventiveness on the part of our God. And this is what we're called to do. And the tragedy of it is what happens in carnality, what happens to the unregenerate mind, what happens when Satan takes our God-given inventiveness, our God-given creativity, and then he perverts it to a crafty, inventive um, evil where humans learn new ways to be perverted, where humans develop new practices, new customs. Each one has to be more perverted than the one before because that's just not any fun anymore. Now we need to craftily invent a new form of carnality, find a new way to express satanic perversion. And every time our God-given inventiveness is used in this perversion kind of way, God calls that tolevah an abomination, which we'll get to in the fourth phrase. The scoffer is an abomination to men. 
So we have those artistic designs. 35-32, same, same concept. To make designs for working in gold and silver and in bronze, the cutting of stones for settings and the carving of wood as to perform in every inventive work. Every inventive work. And so some people might specialize. Some people might be you know, specialize in stones or specialize in wood or specialize in, in uh, jewels or specialize in gold. And, and maybe, you know, they, they have one particular skill set for one particular. This guy had all of it. Every single field, every single uh, trade, every single uh, aspect of inventive work. Put in his heart to teach both he and Aholiab, the son of Asamach, the tribe of Dan. And so they were able to teach apprentices the work of an engraver, of a designer, and of an embroiderer. Blue and purple, scarlet material, fine linen, and of a weaver as performers of every work and makers of designs. Makers of designs. And so coming up with all these, all this inventiveness and deciding if you want paisley or plaid or, or checkerboard or, or whatever. Okay? The inventiveness that designs these things is a reflection of God who himself displayed amazing inventiveness when he created dogs and cats and snakes and birds and fish and all the, the varieties of, of what we have in this world and, uh, and all the rest. God appreciates the variety, obviously, or he wouldn't have made it the way that he made it. First Samuel. One thirteen. Hmm. Eli thought she was drunk. <laughs> she wasn't. Okay, but this is the the process that when you are going through your considerations, your first impression might be wrong. Okay, so don't just limit yourself to that first impression. Look a little bit more into it. Find out. How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah replied, No, my Lord, I'm a woman oppressed in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. So she's able to correct his thinking on that. Let him know, no, I'm not drunk. So in this thought process, make sure uh, your, your impression is accurate, that you're seeing what you think you're seeing. Saul planned to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. This was his thought process. This is what he reckoned he was going to do. What he considered would be accomplished. And uh, the king does not desire any dowry except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. And uh, Saul was convinced that uh, David would die trying. Right? No, he's going to (laughs) succeed. In fact, he's going to give double portion. He's going to come back with 200 foreskins. How do you like me now? Right? This was the, the, the thought process involved in that. Saul planned to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And this is the other thing. So this, this requires um, ration, uh, rational thinking. This requires the, the thought process that considers alternatives and outcomes and what the results are going to be. This is more than just uh, instinctive animalistic problem solving. Uh, this is actually rational thought for long-term uh, purposes. This is entirely a perversion of, of, uh, of God's design when carnality takes hold of our thinking. 1 Kings 10.21 All 
this is, what a description of wealth. All of King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold. All the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. None was silver. Why? Silver was not considered valuable in the days of Solomon. <laughs> you know, standards can change over the years. There was a time that glass was a precious item because the manufacturing of glass was so difficult and that the possession of glass was a, was a uh, same thing with aluminum. Aluminum used to be a precious metal. Uh, but then processes changed and then the, the process to develop aluminum and aluminum became cheap. And uh, what used to be valuable now is, is highly uh, inexpensive. Okay? Things change. Standards change. Thought processes can change. So if we're, uh, if, if we're going to ground our thinking, our consideration on today's norms and standards, we're doomed. We need to ground our thinking on God's unchanging norms and standards. What does it say in the Word of God? What, what does God call righteous? What does God call holy? Silver was not considered valuable in the days of uh, Solomon. There's a thought process. Psalm 32, 2. Or verses 1 and 2 here. You'll notice, I told you I was going to do this on Sunday. I went through my Bible and, and asked uh, Logos Software, I said, find me every passage where the Hebrew has Asherah or where the Greek has Makarios and where it's translated as blessed in, by the New American Standard Bible translators and go ahead and cross that off and put the word happy after that. And so I uh, did the search, uh, created the visual filter, and now you can see it in every passage where those criteria are existing. So in the, when it says, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, that's, uh, that's Asherah in the Hebrew. And so cross it off and write the word happy in there. How happy is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And that's all of us, <laughs> right? Who's not happy to have your sin paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. How happy is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, does not reckon iniquity, does not consider iniquity, does not impute it, reckon it, consider it, think it. Okay, this is the judicial thinking of God. He knows I'm a sinner, but he reckoned my sin and he gave it to Jesus Christ. And and Jesus Christ paid the price. The Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So that's Psalm 32. Psalm 144 in verse 3. The wonder of it all. O Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him? Or the son of man that you think of him? that you regard, that you consider, that you reckon. That God looks at humanity and He reckons a tremendous worth, a tremendous value. Man and the Son of Man. He sees humanity. God does not regard angels like God regards man. The contrast between angelity and and humanity is a huge contrast. And just the, the basis of God's thought process towards them. He did not send God the Son as the angel of the Lord to benefit the angelic realm. He sent God the Son as the man, as God made flesh. He walked this earth as a man. 
He condemns sin in the flesh. The regard for man and the son of man. This is huge. This goes into, again, the fall of Satan and the, the whole, uh, the whole um, framework of the angelic conflict comes down to this issue. The exaltation of humanity over angelity. And the subjection of angels. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to render service to those who would inherit salvation? Rhetorical question. Yes, the answer is. Every angel, even the mightiest, the most glorious, the most powerful, the greatest angels ever created are servants by by God's eternal destiny. The plan for their eternality is to serve us. And for at least a third of the angels, that was not acceptable. (laughs) That was a plan with which they uh, they would not submit. And so Satan presented an alternative and a third of the angels jumped on board. Okay, Satan is the original planner, schemer, uh, inventor of evil. And uh, it's all the other angels then, the third of them that fell, that followed after Satan's plan. Now they did so for their own reasons, for other objectives perhaps, that he does have a house divided. But that's what we deal with when we study the fallen angels and the angelic conflict. So what is man that you take knowledge of him or the son of man that you think of him? That tandem of man and son of man is so huge. Because this is our blessing in, in Adamic humanity to be able to portray the begetter and the begotten one. All right. How are we doing? And of course, uh, Proverbs. Now, let's go to Proverbs. We've seen this verb already a couple times. The mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Remember that? Okay. We're expected to be thinkers as God is a thinker. We're expected to plan, but in our planning, we've got to have that humility to realize that we've got to keep ourselves in the will of God. We've got to acknowledge Him in all our ways. He will direct our steps. We can make a plan, but let's make sure that our plan is on board with God's plan. Let's let the Lord direct our steps. Also verse 30 of the same chapter. He who winks his eyes does so to devise perverse things. He who compresses his lips brings evil to pass. This is the carnal planning that happens when you, you know you wink the eye. You're you're indicating that something is uh, something is afoot, right? You know when you and we can, we do the same thing to this day. It's a continue. It's a it's a timeless expression of humanity when we say something and we're trying to get somebody to go along with our our scheme, trying to go along with our plot, right? And so you say something, and then you give a sidelong wink there so that somebody else can play along with it. Okay? It's an invitation for somebody else to join your deceit. So he who winks his eyes does so to devise perverse things. Like when um, <laughs> the kids were small and uh, we were driving back from Washington State and we had a um, we stopped at Disneyland, but the kids didn't know that we were going to stop at Disneyland. So we drove from Seattle down to Anaheim. We got a hotel. We stopped in Anaheim. And then the plan was, uh, instead of packing up the next day and driving on to Texas, we actually had an extra night in that hotel booked because we were going to spend the day at Disneyland. But the kids didn't know that. And um, so we're in the hotel. We go down to get the breakfast. And uh, while we're getting breakfast at the hotel, one of the other customers at the hotel, you remember this? Um, <laughs> comes up to the kids and says, isn't it terrible that that Disneyland is closed today? 
and then the sidelong wink, you know, wanting Sharon and I to play along with this. It was a lady, wasn't it? Some lady in the in the breakfast area there. Okay, problem with with uh, her deceit is the kids were oblivious. They didn't know we were going to Disneyland, right? It was no news to them. Why do they care? You know, it was really irrelevant in their life if Disneyland was closed today. So they did, they were not bothered by it at all. They weren't stumped by the whole thing. So the the sidelong wink got uh, got that lady nowhere. And and then she was kind of flabbergasted that the kids didn't care if Disneyland was closed today. What do they care? You know. So that was kind of fun. Anyway, and then we broke the news to them. Oh, by the way, Disneyland is not closed today. And yes, we are we are going to go see Mickey Mouse or whatever we were going to do. All right. Anyway, that sidelong wink. Proverbs 16.30. Proverbs 24.8 is the verse we're looking at today. How about Isaiah 2 and verse 22? Yeah. So uh, we have the day of the Lord here in Isaiah chapter 2. The pride of man will be humble. The loftiness of men will be abased. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Great benefit to the day of the Lord, the great benefit to His judgment is that the real celebrity of the universe will be exalted and all the other, the pinnacle of human achievement is going to be cast down. Antichrist is the best humanity can offer under Satan's leadership and it is nothing. God brings it to nothing. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Idols will completely vanish. Men will go into caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty when He arises to make the earth tremble. In that day men will cast away to the moles and the bats their idols of silver and their idols of gold which they made for themselves to worship. All these man-made idols and they're worshiping. They want nothing to do with it after that. In order to go into the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty when He arises to make the earth tremble. And then here's the stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils. For why should he be esteemed? Why should he be esteemed? In other words, why are you making man your trust? Why are you worshiping man? Why are you worshiping these man-made religions? Why are you placing your faith in the wrong object? Now, this verse might seem to contradict a little bit with, with Psalm 144, right? Because God does esteem man. Why would we esteem man? You see the difference? We should esteem God. We need to worship God, not worship man. If we think our Savior is at the ballot box, if we think, uh, and, and I, I like the, what former President Trump said last Sunday at that church in Dallas. He said, our nation needs a Savior and it's not a political leader. He said, it's not me, it's Jesus Christ. And I'm thankful that he named the name of Christ and he said, that's the, that's the one Savior our nation needs. But stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils. Why should he be esteemed? If you're placing your faith in man, your faith is in the wrong object. All right. How are we doing? Let's get these last ones done and call it good. Psalm uh, or Isaiah 29, 16, and 17. 
you turned things around. And this is when we, um, yeah, when we think we're so clever. (laughs) Satan thinks he's so clever. Sinners think they're so clever. The Lord is way ahead of all of us. Should the potter be considered as equal with the clay? (laughs) I mean, seriously? The potter and the clay. And you're going to you're going to make them equal? You're going to compare the two? The potter is the one that shapes the clay. The potter is the one that makes the clay into what he chooses to make it. Should the potter be considered as equal with the clay? What is made would say to his maker, he did not make me? You didn't do that. (laughs) Okay? What a boastful pot. Okay? If it wasn't for the potter, you'd still be a lump of clay. But you know, it's like Satan saying, I shall be like the Most High God. Seriously? You're going to be the uncreated creator, the I am, the self-existent I am. Too late, you're already a creature. By the time you can think such a devilish thought, it's too late, you're already a created being. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? Or what is formed, say to him who formed it, he has no understanding? As if I'm smarter than you, I know what I'm doing here. Is it not yet just a little while before Lebanon will be turned into a fertile field and the fertile field will be considered as a forest? I wonder what the Sahara Desert is going to be like in the Millennial Kingdom. God's going to bring about a lot of changes. Things that we wouldn't even expect. Alright, then uh, Isaiah 40. Behold, the nations are like a drop from the bucket. They are regarded as specks of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. We look back over the, the, the course of human history and we think we have these great empires, we have these great nations, these nations that rise and fall, and even the greatest nation that's ever been, like a speck of dust. God's regard is for his own plan, for his own king, now, his son that he's going to put on that throne. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. We want to have God's estimation on all these things. If we allow for our human uh, patriotism to overcome our our spiritual walk, we're we're in trouble. Don't confuse patriotism with biblical Christianity. I think Paul got wrapped up in his patriotism and why he wanted to get to Jerusalem instead of going to Rome. He was wrapped up in his patriotism and his love for the Jewish people. And he compromised his spiritual duties. Finally, Isaiah 53. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. The thought process that went involved when the Jewish people rejected their Messiah despised and we did not esteem him. And so he's, he's departed. He's seated at the Father's right hand. He, he's waiting for Israel now to accept their Messiah, but it's going to take hell on earth. It's going to take the wrath of God to humble them, to look upon him whom they pierced. They have to call upon the one that they crucified to save them. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken smitten of God and afflicted. 
So these are the verses that go into it. And this is just a smattering, but I think it's a good sampling. I think you can see the parallel with the, this, the Greek usage of logizomai, the, the, the concepts that we apply very frequently uh, related to uh, imputation, re- related to different things uh, that, that, uh, that we've dealt with over the years. But this is the thinking of evil. So we'll pick up here next week and I'll show you where we're going to take this. One who plans to do evil. When you put the active thought into not just I mean, it's one thing, sin is one thing, right? We, we all sin. I mean, the idea that we have a sin nature, that we respond to a stimulus, we respond to a temptation, whatever. We commit a sin, that's one thing. But evil and the planning of evil, whereby we take our God-given inventiveness, our God-given intellect, our thought processes, where we then start to uh, to formulate the plans and the schemes and the designs and the and the uh, the reckoning, whereby we put ourselves into this system of evil, of our own invention, that's beyond a sin question. Okay, this is uh, this is the, the the scope of evil for what it is, and to to take our God given um, creativity and become a plotter, planner, schemer of evil. The inventor of evil. Oh, this is horrible. So men will call a schemer in the devising of folly is sin. The play on words there links the schemer with the devising. The devising of folly is sin. And, and God permits it. God permits it because He gave us this inventiveness. He watches us use it as that long-suffering of God grows more and more wrathful. Okay? So just be on, be warned. He will eventually step in and overrule, and when that judgment comes, that's what this abomination deals with. So we'll, we'll wrap that up next week. All right, so we, like I said, we got one more Wednesday. That'll be next week. This is the 22nd and the 29th, and then, uh, and then we'll have to hold off until 2023. <laughs> Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for this study. I pray, Father, that we would be humble before the wisdom of Proverbs, that we would be um, humble before you, that we would use all of our faculties, Father, our thinking, our words, our, our hands, every aspect of our being can be harnessed for your good pleasure. That uh, rather than inventors of evil, we want to be crafty and inventive in how we can serve you, how we can um, write a new song, how we can find a new inventive way by which to communicate Bible doctrine. Whatever it is, Father, help us to be inventive in our evangelism, inventive in our edification, inventive in, in uh, all that we do so that our creative inventiveness can be testimony to your creative inventiveness. We just thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.